absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. This is Dave Debo. On the program today, Jason Corwin will be with us. He's a Seneca. He's also a professor in the Department of Indigenous Studies at UB. Interesting discussion there because for a long time, the Indigenous Studies Department was kind of an adjunct of American studies. Now it's even a greater priority at UB. He's not just going to talk about UB, though. There are a lot of issues to raise there with Jay Moran. That comes your way in about half an hour. But first, Jeff Kelly is with us from Investigative Post. Jeff has been writing an awful lot lately about racism and use of the N-word in the Buffalo Police Department. So we're going to look at a couple of his articles. We're going to get a recap on some of those stories. They've been out for a while, but the the story is also evolving and developing in a way that I think makes sense to have Jeff here today. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. Let's look at your Twitter feed this morning already. The very top of the feed at uh, GHKelly1969, that's your Twitter, uh, you have a new story this guess, morning. Guess how old I am, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Were you born maybe in 69? <laughs> there you go. Um, you have a story that just came out this morning on your Twitter feed that is kind of a follow-up to the other reporting that we wanted to bring you out uh, here for. Councilman recalls racism as a cop. Explain the latest. Yeah, so this is uh, this article is based on a conversation I had with Councilman David Rivera, who's who served 25 years with the Buffalo Police Department and is chair of the council's police oversight committee. We had this conversation a couple years back, although we reiterated it a bit yesterday. Uh, It was a conversation about police budgets and about 911 response times. And then at the end of the conversation, he talked about his, uh, his experiences as a young cop. He came on the force in 1982 And he described, uh, he was talking about his frustration with the fact that somehow, despite all the screening mechanisms that are in place for young recruits, somehow bad cops seem to get on the force. Most cops, he says, are good cops, but these bad cops get through. How is it? Is it that they somehow fool these psychological tests and, and background checks and interviews with relatives and friends? Or do they confront a culture? when they get there and choose, or maybe not choose, but assimilate to that culture. And so he described that culture to me and, uh, and the racist language he heard, the mistreatment of, of a partner of his, his first partner, uh, who got in a fight in a station house on the west side when someone called him a name. Uh, and his, so Dave described, Councilman Rivera described that uh, his, his experience and his frustration with it and uh, and so that's what today's story is about. And it's a response kind of to the, the articles we published the last couple of weeks, which are based on court documents. We, um, will, we will absolutely get there to the more recent reporting. But uh, Rivera remembered that in 89, 
the culture of the police force was... Earlier than that. 82, 83 is when he came on. But he's describing it throughout his career, uh, you know, uh, as an officer. He does say that, that in many ways the department's culture has changed. That, that's where I was going to go. Yeah. He described it back then as, can we say racist? Uh, or at least it countenanced ra- racism. Enabling it was, racism. Yeah, it was not uncommon to experience it, to see it, to hear it. He said, uh, you know, he never. He said he never saw anybody do anything wrong. He just heard the language and the attitude, the dismissiveness, not just among fellow officers, but towards members of the community. All right. So here's the argument: negative reporter digging up something from the late '80s and trying to say that what was existing back then is still a problem now. You're just dredging up old stuff, Jeff. Explain how the comments of David Rivera are relevant today in light of the other reporting that you've been doing. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So I had this conversation with David Rivera two years ago, and and it sat because it wasn't relevant to my reporting then. But it was relevant to the reporting I've done the last couple of weeks. First, we published a story about uh, depositions given in a lawsuit, which is an ongoing lawsuit. It's four years in filed in 2018 by Black Love uh, Resists in the Rust Mm -hmm. against the city of Buffalo and the Buffalo Police Department alleging uh, racially discriminatory policing practices and unconstitutional policing practices. The lawsuit arises largely from the uh, now discontinued checkpoints program, Mm -hmm. uh, traffic checkpoints, which were largely placed on the east side. And, uh, and the now, and the, behavior of the the tactics of the now disbanded housing and strike force units of the Buffalo Police Department. My understanding of that lawsuit is that they said the checkpoints themselves, because they are concentrated on the east side, are racially targeted. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So the purpose of the lawsuit was not necessarily to look at the culture of the police. It was specifically to look at this practice. Ah. But along the way. But along the way. But the... But the... But here's the thing. The, the, the lawsuit, in fact, alleges continuing practices uh, that are racially discriminatory, not just the checkpoints uh, program, but sort of across the board in uh, Buffalo Police. So it's, it's, it is instigated by a particular program. I, I, and I don't mean this in any, any pejorative or, or detrimental way, but a tactic. Let's place these traffic stops in the places where we think we're going to get guns. A tactic. Yeah. You're saying beyond that, there's also some cultural issues. Yeah. And so so in the course of the, this, uh, as I say, the, this lawsuit is four years old. It, it is sort of percolated wor- through the courts working for a while. The courts, and they're in the process of doing depositions and discovery. Uh, they have been for a while. And uh this is a long way of getting around to say I, I got a copy of these depositions, and um, which were done with um, command officers who were with these strike force and housing units that did most of these checkpoints, and ha- again have since been disbanded um, because they were considered sort of rogue. They were causing a lot of trouble. They were instigating a lot of lawsuits and complaints. Mm. So in one of them, uh, a retired lieutenant, uh, Thomas Whalen, retired in 2018, talks about frequent use of the N-word uh, and other racist language by, uh, by Buffalo cops, by himself. He says he used it, and he, he said 
this is maybe perhaps a little bit unbelievable, that nearly every officer in the Buffalo Police Department had used it at one, one point or another. That strains credulity. That is unlikely. You think that is an overstatement? No, but nonetheless, you have a Buffalo police officer testifying to a culture in which the use of this word was not uncommon. Uh, he may be exaggerating how often he heard it and from how many officers, but he's saying he used it, mm-hmm. and he's saying that under oath. Uh, there are also depositions with other officers ta- talking about not quite so specifically about uh, the use of racist language, but about the culture of discipline and um, and the lack of oversight, the lack of training uh, about such issues. Did he explain, not, not that he needs to explain it away, but did he explain the, um, the roots of the use of that word or, or yeah, the, the, cause- the, culture, the culture that flows from it? Okay, yeah, they toss the word around, but did he say anything in the deposition to the, uh, to the effect of, oh, yeah, not only did we toss the word around, but we basically do not respect black people? Or was there, a, was there an elaboration there other than just, yeah, I use the N-word from time to time? I will say uh, that when Whalen said he used uh, this language, he said that was a failure on his part. He'd lost his temper. But then he said, better to lose my temper and give someone then to take out my nightstick then or to take out something. My, my nightstick and give someone a beating or to or to arrest them and introduce them to the the criminal justice system uh, that that better better a good tongue lashing is what he uh, said now with without any realization at the time how inappropriate that is he said he said Yes. I or use, at the time, I, I, I guess. I use the word. I'm human. Caught up in said. the moment. Yeah. He says. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. So he says he's not proud of it, but uh, but that it, it is a fact. So that was the first story. All right. Now, let's stay on the first one before we yeah. move to, to number two. This was a deposition in a court proceeding about those checkpoints. Right. Let's stop for a moment and, and just make sure we're clear. Does a deposition have the force of sworn testimony? He's... He yes. pretty much put the hand on the Bible and said, this is true, before he said this. Yeah, it's, okay. sw- it's sworn testimony, and he's a police officer, was for many years. He knows what sworn testimony means. He's yep. done it in court lots of times. All right. And that's true of the other officers who gave depositions in this case, including former Commissioner Durenda, uh, a, couple of capta- uh, a couple of captains who are associated with Housing and Strike Force. Depositions upcoming in this lawsuit include Mayor Byron Brown and current Commissioner Joseph Grimaglia. Uh, among others. So it's uh, as a reporter, this lawsuit is kind of a trove because it is providing a window onto, onto the operations and the culture of the police department. All right, but that's the part I want to ask you about. Yeah. Devil's advocate here, because I can hear the uh, antenna going up in City Hall saying, again, but they didn't uh, look at this or that or the other thing. So for the sake of discussion, um, can we assume that whoever was gathering the deposition led them down a road. We're here to talk about checkpoints, but as long as you're here, I'm going to ask you about racism in the department. Is there anything in that process that could discount his admission? Well, you know, the way— I mean, I I can picture myself on the stand. Again, devil's advocate here. I could picture myself on the stand saying all sorts of things that a really good attorney 
got me to say without me necessarily wanting to say it. Well, remember that that uh, former Commissioner Durenda, retired Lieutenant uh, Tommy Whalen, who mm-hmm. gave, the, gave this testimony, they're sitting with an attorney. There's an attorney sitting right. right next to them. And th- the way depositions work is you pretty much have to answer any question. Right. And and they they take a long time. Whalen's took two days. Yeah. You know, they you, you sit for hours and hours answering a broad array of questions, you know, beginning with who are you and uh, and what's your professional history and what was your training? You have to sort of go through, you go through a lot in these depositions. They're pretty wide ranging. Because they are not the court proceeding. They're the investigatory side. They're really gathering as much information as they can to figure out what it is they need to, to use as part of the trial. That's right. Okay. That's right. So they're going to be deeper. They're going to be deeper. And they are, we said, already sworn. Um, the part that I, I'm glad you said, though, is he had an attorney at his elbow. That's it's right. It's not like he... An attorney representing the city. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like he was led down a path. It's not like uh, the process enabled him or tricked him. Yeah. No. No, not not at all. It's all fairly straightforward, and you can see in 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 the in the article I published on that that particular on the depositions, there are links to the depositions. If if uh, if if your listeners mm-hmm. are are curious and and have the stamina to to, to read them, wade through to them. wade through the hundreds and hundreds of pages. In fact, more than a thousand pages of uh, of testimony from these various officers. You'll see it's a pretty s- relatively straightforward back and forth between. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the attorney for the plaintiffs and these officers. All right. And to what degree? He said, okay, use of, I've used the N-word. Lieutenant Thomas Whalen, former supervisor, the strike force unit, says, I've used the N-word. To what degree did he then say, and so do we all, the rest of the force? Uh, he, he, he went ahead and said, said probably every officer. Now, again... That's where I wanted to go. You mentioned earlier that that you thought that was not necessarily credible because he spoke in such a broad way. That's right. Okay. Any anytime anybody says everybody or nobody as a journalist, <laughs> I, I think this you discounted immediately. This, this can't be true. This is the curve yeah. breaker. Yep. Uh, um, so I'm more S- similarly. This is the largest, the biggest, the best. Right. You automatically kind of discount that and say, "Oh, really? Okay." Right. Yeah. So, so as a as a journalist, as a reader of these documents, I'm interested in Whalen's admission about himself and what caused him to say, "Well, everybody does this." It, and, mean, it means there's more than one. It's more than just him. And go there. How yeah. did he back that up? Yeah. What what and, kind of uh, what evidence did he present saying, "Hey, it's not just me, man." Yeah. And what's interesting to me, and this this applies to to the other story that we'll discuss too, is that this is a Buffalo police officer talking about it in in a in what amounts to a public document. A court filing is a public document. These sorts of complaints are. Uh, are lodged not infrequently by members of the community who have mm. uh, encounters with police that have rubbed them the wrong way. Sometimes the accusations are genuine and true, and sometimes people are just angry and they make things up. That you know we have to allow for that. But uh, but this comes from a cop mm. and uh, a, a retired cop, but a cop nonetheless. And that is very rare. When did he retire? 
Is there any way we can argue, oh, that was that was the way it was, but it's not that way now? 2018. Okay. Yeah. He retired in 2018, not long after Strike Force and ho- the housing unit were, were disbanded. Were disbanded. I, that is not, I don't, I don't know, but I, I have no reason to believe that's the cause for his retirement. I, he had put in plenty of years. It was maybe just time. All right. Now, another thing that the, dis- uh, the, the deposition does address, though, is not just his use of the N-word, but it also talks about supervision and lack of discipline and those kind of issues. Talk to me a little bit about what you uncovered there. Yeah. Uh, so so in the, in here now we're talking about more than just Whalen's deposition. They're the depositions of, uh, of various captains and lieutenants who served in housing and strike force. And they all seemed to uh, – they all painted a picture of particularly of strike force as a unit with not a great deal of supervision. They kind of called its own shots. Uh, where there is very little training about, certainly about uh, bias or constitutionality of stops, which you would think would be important given that these Mm -hmm. two units were the primary operators of these checkpoints. Uh, Maybe some initial training a day, an afternoon in the academy, perhaps some refresher training here and there, but nothing nothing extensive, nothing constantly renewed. and also very very little official discipline for misbehavior. Perhaps, you know, Whalen and others, uh, uh, Captain Serafini, various others, sort of discuss how discipline is handled within the unit between, you know, between a commanding officer and, and an alleged offender, uh, alleged offending officer but not so much uh, through, through the, what, in fact, are the, the required procedures. All right. Jeff Kelly is with us from Investigative Post. He's written a series of articles lately. The latest one on his Twitter feed is about allegations that go back to the 80s. Councilman recalls racism as a cop. The bigger bombshells, we just uncovered one of them, Buffalo Cops' use of N-word, not uncommon. Lieutenant Thomas Whalen, a supervisor in the strike force unit, uh, in a deposition in a court case that is pending, basically said, oh, yeah, I've used it, and a lot of others have, too. We're going to talk more about that and another log on the fire, Jeff's recent reporting. Also, this headline, lawsuit says police captain went on racist rant. So there's even more to look at when we return. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Not sure what you want to watch tonight? We've got you covered. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule to see what's on WNED PBS, WNED Create, and WNED PBS Kids. Click the primetime button to see what's on tonight. You can also search for your favorite programs in the search bar or look for programs by date and time. Visit WNED.org slash TV schedule and start making your viewing plans now. There are a lot of great ways to spend $8 a month and get a blue check mark. So why not become a member of WBFO, your NPR station? You'll be a verified member on the spot and your money will support high quality news and information. For fun, we'll send you a snazzy window cling and a travel mug, both with our logo and the blue check mark that shows everyone you're a verified member of WBFO. Just call 1-877-456-8870 or go to WBFO.org to make your pledge. Thank you. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. 
To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. Jeff Kelly is with us for about another 10 minutes or so. We're talking about his recent reporting for Investigative Post that talks about racist culture in the Buffalo Police Department. Uh, we, we touched on an article that looked at the deposition in a court case where one particular officer said he used the N-word and it was common amongst a lot of his colleagues. Now let's look at another shoe to drop. This article, November 22nd, lawsuit says police captain went on racist rant. This is a separate lawsuit, correct? Yeah, so so let's, let me walk you back. So we filed the story about these depositions uh, on a... On a Monday, and the Buffalo News followed suit. They 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 reported off of our reporting, and then got some reaction from the commissioner and the mayor, mm-hmm. say, who said many of the same uh, raised many of the same points you did in our in our previous conversation that this was this was, you know, this is one guy's testimony. This right. is not about the culture, and and we do not tolerate this sort of like that is not the culture of the Buffalo Police Department. And then, just three days later. This lawsuit, this federal lawsuit, is filed. Uh, I had gotten a copy of it uh, a few days before it was filed. And basically what it alleges is that... Two black officers and a mental health clinician say that their supervisor made all sorts of outrageous and derogatory remarks at a particular meeting and kept it up and there, too, was using the N-word pretty indiscriminately. And this meeting was in May uh, and... Uh, the officers who who were present, who witnessed this this uh, what they call a racist rant, uh, filed a complaint uh, with Internal Affairs, which is the proper procedure when mm-hmm. there's when in the Buffalo Police Department, if there is a issue involving racial discrimination, that complaint is meant to go directly to Internal Affairs, not to your supervising officer, particularly. If the supervising officer may is, be involved in the, the alleged behavior, offender. right? Right. Okay. So, so, and that is the case here. The officer we're talking about is Captain Amber Byer, who oversees the department's behavioral health team. Right. Which is interesting, right? Because so they work for her. They work, and for they her. allege that she was the one that had the racist rant, and they take it to Internal Affairs, and it dies there. So they end up in federal court. It, we don't know that it dies. Okay, there. yeah, because those are private. Okay, and and in fact, uh, when this story was published, the response from from the commissioner and the mayor was that an in, an internal affairs investigation continues. Well, okay. it's, it's been seven months. Let's right. let's just point that out. And the people who are interview who need to be interviewed to determine the truth of it, they all work right there for the Buffalo Police Department. They're not hard to find. Mm-hmm. Frequently, internal affairs investigations into complaints are stymied by invest- police investigators' professed inability to interview the complainants. In this case, they work for the department. Okay. Uh, and so it, it's not clear why it's taken seven months to reach a conclusion. Maybe now that the story has come out, it will reach a conclusion more quickly. Give me the context that led up to this racist rant. So, Officer walks in and shows her a viral video? Yeah, a video that had gone viral at the time that shows, and this is in a different jurisdiction, 
uh, two white officers pulling over a black driver. The black driver, as it turns out, is a cop in uniform. It is the video uh, made the rounds as evidence of, as an example, an illustration of racial profiling by in white In another city, but in general. That's right. Something that someone was putting out there to say, cops have an issue. Back this spring, that video was making the rounds. So an officer brought it in and showed it to, uh, to Captain Beyer and some others in the office. Uh, in the of the behavioral health team at police headquarters, and it sparked an in-office discussion. It did. Captain Byer, according to the lawsuit, alleged, right? Yeah, allegedly said that she could see both sides of the situation. She got pushback from a black officer who said, "No, this is this is racial profiling. That's why we're looking at it." This prompted, allegedly, according to the lawsuit. Uh, a lengthy, about 20-minute uh, uh, monologue from Captain Byer uh, that those present found racially offensive and uh, was the subject of continuing conversation after she'd left, uh, at which point one of the officers apparently said, well, that was awkward. <laughs> uh, and eventually, within days, they filed their complaint with Internal Affairs uh, alleging this racist language and, in the workplace. And in their complaint or in their lawsuit, because, again, the complaint with internal affairs is still internal, but in the federal lawsuit, how do they describe it other than as a racist rant? Was the N-word part of that? Uh, they don't say that, that in that initial conversation that she used the N-word. However, in the months that followed, she was apparently allegedly upset by their complaint to internal affairs and by the investigation that was opened as a result. And she pressured them and questioned them and harassed them, allegedly, about their decision to file this complaint. And at one point, I, I believe it was in September, so just a couple of months ago, the complaint says that Bayer came into the office, printed out a Facebook post from a Buffalo resident uh, who, who the team believed suffered from uh, mental issues and perhaps needed a visit, and she read it aloud. That post made frequent use of the N-word, and every time she that came... That posted, though. That's not her words, but she is reading the post that includes it. And, okay. uh, and according to the complaint, every time she came to the N-word, she emphasized it. Mm. And when she was asked... To stop, she said, I'm just reading the post. Okay. What has the city's response been? The city's response has been, we're aware of the complaint and the internal affairs investigation continues. So they have not publicly pushed back against it, but they're saying they can't because it's under investigation. Yeah, and no, now it's also there. Now they are also party to a law Litigation, to right. Litigation, which is always, as you know, a convenient excuse not to answer questions about a subject. <laughs> Whether valid or not. I mean, it may well be that they can't no, talk. No, I, I, I laugh, but it's... But yes, it, but it, it is. is used sometimes, yeah. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Um, tell me what happens next in both of these cases. Uh, number one, Thomas Whalen, the supervisor that said the N-word is not uncommon. That particular lawsuit uh, is moving ahead slowly. It's still in the deposition phase. When will we see more from that? 
soon. So, so it is. It what I understand is that the uh, the plaintiffs in in that case have a few more depositions to do, including the mayor and the current commissioner, Joe Gramaglia. Uh, they are moving forward with other discovery, and this is a it's a vast lawsuit. It's huge. Yeah. It's huge, and and they have requested and received troves of emails and documents and all and and schedules and and police reports, all kinds of minutia. Um, so that is moving forward slowly. It's been four years. I imagine it'll be maybe not another four, but you but don't some, picture it sometime. Soon. Okay. And, and as far as the lawsuits uh, uh, alleging this behavior by Captain Amber Byer, that is brand new. So, uh, so that and again, it's a federal federal lawsuit. Federal lawsuits move slowly. Federal civil lawsuit, right? Yeah. So, so. Uh, That'll take a while. All right. Yeah. And and along the way, though, we do expect, yeah, you said uh, the mayor will be deposed. The police commissioner will de- be deposed. There's more stuff that's going to peel back the curtain and look inside the department with that particular lawsuit. Now, the other one, the, um, the lawsuit over the complaint on the racist rant with uh, Captain Amber Beyer. Where does that one stand? So uh, again, civil and federal. So it's going to move slowly. Do we assume? Yeah, I imagine it will move relatively slowly uh, unless the city uh, chooses to settle the case, which they typically do not choose to do uh, from the outset. Uh, they will probably try to get it dismissed. Uh, that that it seems to be not just the city's tactic. Almost any any uh, defendant's tactic is to try to find a reason. Not to argue the lawsuit at all. Okay, uh, but I imagine that will take a while unless the city chooses to simply settle it. All right. Now, as we uh, summarize here, what is your takeaway? And I know reporters don't have opinions, but you do have insight. You do have context. Do these two lawsuits taken together uh, indicate a cause for concern? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, that. Uh, the very the, the most generous interpretation of, of of these revelations is there are corners of the department in which this culture persists very much as David Rivera told me when when we discussed this conversation yesterday this conversation we'd had a couple of years ago about his experience he said to me listen you know again that was the old culture he said he was describing and we've made great progress but there's a lot more progress. There to be are made. dark corners here that He's, need to be investigated. Right, and gotcha. and and the remnants of that culture sh- must not be tolerated. All right, Jeff Kelly with Investigative Post. What's your website? Investigativepost.org. Very good. Thanks come o- for come often. <laughs> and and the Twitter we mentioned at the top too is at gh kelly nineteen sixty nine. His latest article is there. The other two we spoke of are at investigativepost.org. Jeff, thanks for coming on in. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dave. Coming up next, Jason Corwin, clinical assistant professor at UB's Indigenous Studies Department. He'll be with Jay Moran in an interesting discussion on tap there. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Check out the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel. Ellicottville is a town of variety, not only in what they have to offer, but the people. 
The Burlington community is becoming increasingly multicultural and the library is reflecting that. Parks and playgrounds have been what makes the town of Tonawanda a great place to grow up. The series began in 2003, but it's making its debut on YouTube now. Although some of the businesses and people may have changed over the years, the spirit of these wonderful towns remain the same. We just didn't realize what we had in our own backyard. We need the next generation to protect it and carry on. Learn about Jamestown, Burlington, Welland, East Aurora, and more than a dozen other beautiful communities in our region by watching the Our Town series now on YouTube. I, w I would live there. <laughs> this is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. Welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Uh, my name is Jay Moran. Very pleased to be joined uh, by uh, Dr. Jason Corwin uh, from the University of Buffalo and their Indigenous Studies program. Thanks for uh, joining us, Dr. Corwin. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Glad you know, to it's be a, here. Yeah, I know. It's a, there's a, I'm thrilled to talk to you, and there's, there's a lot of things to talk about for sure. Uh, not the least of which, though, is the fact that UB has committed to this Indigenous Studies Department. It builds on some a, a legacy, some history inside the American Studies Department, but the university decided to set aside its own department about this. I mean, talk a little bit about the background there. Yeah, well, there, there's a long history since the 70s with such luminaries that, that people may know about, like Oren Lyons and John Mohawk and Barry White, um, both of whom were from the Cattaraugus Territory, and really carved out a space for indigenous studies at um, the request of the Native students who were there in the 70s. And, of course, that was a time when more people were getting active about diversifying the um, histories and the types of, of studies that were happening at universities. So fast forward to the present, and there was tremendous work done by Dr. Teresa McCarthy, who's uh, a professor at UB. She's Onondaga from um, Six Nations Reserve in Ontario. And she worked with others at the university to get a grant to provide the seed funding. But UB had to agree to continue to help the process along after that initial five-year period from uh, of funding from the Mellon Foundation. So it is a significant commitment on the university's part, and it's just been a, a great opportunity for a lot of collaborations within the university and with the larger community. I, I, when you mentioned Dr. McCarthy, I've forgotten to mention also when you started, because you this is part of your bio, that you're Seneca Nation, your yep. clan. Yeah. And prior to coming to UB, I served for six years as the um, founding director of the Seneca Media and Communications Center, where I was very fortunate to have a tremendous team of very talented indigenous creatives. And we were doing everything from 
photography to videography, web design, graphic design. We had a commercial radio station, WGWE, for many years. And so we had a, a, a very robust media presence that um, continues on. And I think I saw a, a comment by you about the idea that and, and you've connected for a certain way digital media, the production of digital media with the s- traditional storytelling of indigenous peoples. Expand on that. Yeah, well, I think that all human beings, storytelling is our basic way of knowing and understanding the world. And it's, you know, particularly recognized and appreciated within indigenous cultures. But, you know, all day long, we tell each other stories about our experiences. And they're very powerful ways of uh, communicating information and, and allowing learning to take place. So a lot of times people in the environmental education field are looking at this new digital media landscape as being something that takes people away from time spent in nature. We hear people talk about things like nature deficit disorder sure. and young people just growing up completely plugged into their <laughs> devices. Right. And so at one point I had the thought, well, what if we use these devices to get people more interested in nature and get them outdoors and engaging with the natural world and engaging with environmental issues? And it's interesting because you you engaged in this is your prior to your work at the University of Buffalo, but you engaged in a I just think this is fascinating, uh, which you you worked with some students, young these are younger students on teaching them organic three sisters gardening. And you again, digital media played a part in this, didn't it? Yeah, so this was a project that I worked on in 2014 with the Cattaraugus Territory Early Childhood Learning Center and the fantastic staff there. Uh, I worked with the uh, After School 3 program, which was the older uh, students, about 9 to 11, 12 age group, and enlisted the help of a good friend, um, uh, Richard Big Kettle, and got who's well known in the community for farming as well as a lot of artistic creations. He's a lacrosse stick maker, snow snake maker, um, just a, a tremendous artisan and and a wealth of knowledge around farming. So we got this project going behind the Early Childhood Learning Center in the field there, and a lot of people pulled together, did what was necessary for us to provide the space and the opportunity for the students to get hands-on with traditional three sisters, corned beans and squash gardening, but also documenting the process from start to finish and created uh, about a 15-minute video and we, we showed it on a loop at the art show at the Seneca Nation Fall Festival. And that was actually what led to me becoming the director of media and communications because there was interest in in developing a media department for the Seneca Nation to serve the other departments as well as to serve the governmental needs of the nation. And at that point, I was already about, I think, like 20-some years into working in the media field. Sure. 
And, and uh, I also have to mention, of course, you, like a couple of us around here, have an old, old, old connection to, re- to terrestrial radio as well. So <laughs> we welcome the kindred spirit in that regard here, Dr. Corwin. Um, interested to find, oh, or maybe just to explore just a little bit more, though, the, that digital media part that uh, helping to document this, this project with these young people. Did that spur their interest? Do you think it added to their interest in understanding gardening, understanding the natural world? I think so, because it's something that's very familiar to young people. They're what people are calling digital natives sure. nowadays. You know, I, I look at my young nephew, and he's able to pick up the nuances and details of these devices uh, so quickly. I mean, everybody sees that. You, you look at people and they, you know, calling on their grandkids to, hey, come help me set up my smartphone. Right. right? right. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it was always my thought that why don't we use these tools to get people interested and, and engaged with the natural world? Like, let's not forget about that which provides our sustenance. I mean, every we get our entire survival from even everything here. All, all these plastic pieces on, of um, the various pieces of equipment in the studio, all all the metals and minerals that make up these various things. It all comes from the earth, but we get very detached from it. And uh, digital media, too much television watching, screen time certainly detracts from that. But there's still a great interest. I think in the outdoors and the environment and in some communities. And so kind of fostering a bridge between the, the um, folks who might be more tech inclined and the folks who are a little more outdoors inclined and saying, you know, we can have both. It's not an either or. And, you know, the, obviously working with the, the young people, I mean, it's, it's an inspiring kind of vision to, to, see them taking such a part in this, not only the natural part, but documenting it as well and doing their own production. But your work has also extended well beyond that in the sense that you've taken on some pretty um, important project, difficult, touchy community projects. In Cowdersport, Pennsylvania, there was, if I'm not mistaken, a project that was going to build a a water treatment plant that was going to help to utilize, or I guess take the, the disposal water from our uh, wastewater from fracking yes. and then put it into the Allegheny River. Yeah. And when you know the history of how the Allegheny River has been impacted by the Kinswood Dam, I mean, they, you know, there's been documentaries left and right, the Lake of Betrayal in particular, a recent PBS production, uh, detailing that story you know there there's already uh, a history of not only ancient history connection to these waterways but a recent history of the the waters being impacted and the community being very negatively and traumatically impacted so when word gets out that there's plans to put fracking wastewater into the headwaters of the river it set off, you know, all kinds of alarms for people in the community. And so 
I was fortunate to work with a lot of community members, a lot of people within the Seneca Nation. We have tremendous environmental professionals, you know, our, our conservation, fish and wildlife department, environmental protection departments, um, council and executives. Everybody was on the same page about we didn't want to see this project happen. It was too risky. There, there's too many contaminants, and there was... Uh, not a clear sense from this company, Epiphany Allegheny, that was proposing this, that their technology would adequately remediate and remove these substances. So we collaborated with a tremendous amount of non-native folks from Cowdersport and from the general area. They would show up at the Allegheny Territory to our weekly meetings in large numbers, and we worked together to put a halt to that project, thankfully. It's an amazing story when you look at it that way. I mean, you can understand there might be a certain portion of the non-native population, people in Cowdersport, who would have an environmental interest. But at the same time, we see it all the time, right? Business, industry needs to thrive, needs to grow. There's always that element there. But when you came in, you found allies and were able to kind of coalesce and and, and find a, a way to, to, to bring a stop to this. Yeah, and it was very humbling to see just how appreciative the folks in Cowdersport who had been sounding an alarm locally but had been getting kind of poo-pooed, like, oh, you're just you know, uh, worrying too much. It's not going to be that big a deal. So it looked like it was. this was going to take place. This was going to happen if, if this if this type of activism didn't generate. Well, basically, what happened, what alerted myself and some other folks in the Seneca Nation about it was there was an editorial put out by a group called Public Herald, which is a, a nonprofit investigative journalism outfit um, based in Pittsburgh, though um, one of the key members is born and raised in Cowdersport. Okay. And they put out a story highlighting the, the, the potential threat from this project. And we read it the day before there was going to be a public hearing about the project in so, Countersport, so uh, we scrambled. Dr. Like, Korn, are you insinuating that there was a non-well-publicized public hearing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was the first news we had heard about. Of course, we were aware that, you know, um, fracking has been going on full force in, in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was starting to expand more into northern Pennsylvania. And, you know, there's a long history of gas and oil development in western New York, the southern tier, northwestern Pennsylvania. But fracking was still in mostly in other parts of Pennsylvania. It hadn't quite yet crept up into that area. But now that it was, and now there was this existential threat of water, this this produced and then treated water getting put into the headwaters. And the Seneca Nation has invested significantly in restoring the fisheries and making sure that the health of the Allegheny River, you know, um, what we call Ohio, the, you know, the good, the beautiful river, uh, there's been a lot invested into making it um, something that, that we're both proud of and that sustains families through through fishing. It's 
that whole water body is recognized by the DEC as being one of the cleanest in the state. So it was too precious to allow something like that to happen. Dr. Jason uh, Corwin is with us here on Buffalo What's Next this morning. He is uh, the head of the uh, Indigenous Studies Department. Not the head. Oh, I'm sorry. We always got to watch that. We always got to watch that, right? (laughs) We always have to know where we are on the ladder. I know that that very well. Um, But uh, if you're with the the new, relatively new, this just started 2021-2022, the Indigenous Studies Department at the University uh, at Buffalo. And while I'd like to talk about that a little bit more, I want to, you brought up something that I, I guess I, I didn't totally understand. You were talking about the Seneca Nation and their environmental efforts, their structure, a governmental structure that it sounds like it's in place to help focus on these issues. And you're seeing the impact of the Allegheny River. Just tell me a little bit more about that. I guess I'm almost interested in a discussion. Are, Are there lessons that, whether it's New York State, on the federal level, that can be learned from the way the Seneca Nation handles environmental issues? Well, of course, there's, you know, philosophically a a deep concern around sustainability and our relationship with the natural world. You know, our, you could say, one of our most important philosophical practices and spiritual practices, it it revolves around giving thanks for the natural world. Um, The Thanksgiving address, people call it in English. Sure. And so there's there's that. But in terms of the Seneca Nation as a modern government with various departments that are focused on particular issues and needs of the community, whether it's um, elders or housing or medical, you know, um, drug and alcohol treatment, you name it, there, there's a, a department focused education. And so there's an environmental protection department who's very much focused on things such as um, brownfield remediation for things in the city of Salamanca or, um, you know, any number of, of potential environmental threats as well as general waste management and disposal. And we also have a conservation fish and wildlife department that's specifically focused on managing the fisheries. You know, they um, uh, run um, uh, fish hatcheries on both territories that, that are run with uh, clean energy and very efficient and are for you know, stocking the the fish populations, as well as um, taking care of anything, you know, um, animal issues, you know, bears getting in people's trash and needing to be relocated to an area away from people or, you know, rabid animals or an injured eagle and making sure it gets to a wildlife rehab. You know, they're, they're out there on the ground, on the land, doing that work every day. And so many of these people are also uh, part of working groups. Like there's a climate change working group within the nation. Really? There is uh, a watershed resources working group, which I was fortunate to be a part of when I worked for the nation. Um, so there, there's really 
a number of um, committed and well-trained professionals in these areas who are, are very diligent about ensuring uh, protection of, of the environment and the natural world on our territories. Uh, there, of course, whether it's the Department of Environmental Conservation here in New York State or the EPA, lots of committed individuals in those departments as well. Yeah. But sometimes those departments and their missions can be sidetracked by politics. Do you, I mean... I Anywhere guess, it can get sidetracked by it, politics. So I guess, Universities yeah. are chock full of politics, Seneca Nation? too. Seneca Nation? Yeah, everywhere. Okay. All right. I just, I, I was inter- I'm interested in going there because it does sound like an expansive effort. You know, the Seneca Nation, of course, is, you know, uh, uh, revenues, of course, that they generate from various interests are, are well documented to a certain extent. But it's interesting to hear that there is that level of, uh, of structure in place that is focused on. It, it, it seems like it's taking the tradition of indigenous peoples and bringing it into a, a very practical, modern day approach to how to uh, how to remedy and deal with very, very complex environmental issues. Yeah, this is something that I explain to people often because oftentimes in the media, we're just hearing about the casino and, uh, you know, conflict with the state over revenue sharing, over gaming compacts. And that's about as far as it, it goes. And people don't understand that, you know, we have all these services that we're seeking to provide to our people. And... And that has to be done, you know, somehow, some kind of way. And that's through the various um, enterprises that the nation has. Yeah, I just uh, I, I guess it's it, we're kind of like opening up a door to a larger conversation about and maybe we can even go on that just a little bit. Like you said, people are surprised. People don't get the media doesn't necessarily focus. What else is the media missing or the general public missing uh, about understanding indigenous peoples in uh, at this stage of history well one is that there's a huge amount of diversity throughout the americas and even if we're just looking in in the context of say the northeast you know we, um, we have different peoples with different histories different languages different traditions and so a lot of times because not much attention has been placed in the media on on native peoples or in schools we're sort of just this out of sight out of mind entity to most people and it's not uncommon to hear oh you know they're still indian oh reservations exist and so so there's you know, in a lot of ways there's a, just a general lack of understanding of just how how things are structured, right? I mean, I, I think when you get right down to it, right? I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a big part of it. So s- students that that are at University at Buffalo that are fortunate to take our courses get to see the great depth and diversity of the indigenous experience, of whether it's around history or linguistics, environmental justice. You know, there's such a wide range of topics that we're teaching and and we're a rapidly growing department too. We yeah, how is the how is the student response to this? Are you are you getting uh, a good um, solid enrollment? I mean, again, like you said, <laughs> universities are political animals too. But yeah, how about the how's it working? Yeah, it, it's been increasing uh, every semester, and 
you know, I, I can speak for myself that in terms of seeing the student reviews, the anonymous student reviews at the end of the semester for the courses, a few times I've had students say, this was my favorite professor at UB. And they appreciate the um, passion and the commitment. We, because, you know, we, we live this, we care about this kind of, you know, the work that we do. So we have people who are in our department who are linguists, who are um, historians, who are media critics, media producers. You know, it's um, people with anthropology backgrounds. You know, it's it's quite a diverse group, and and it's exciting that it's growing. We added two more this this semester, this fall semester. Um, we're going to be adding at least um, two more in another year. Um, we we have people that are teaching language classes, uh, Seneca language, Tuscarora language, um, Mohawk is going to be offered. So it's quite a robust uh, curriculum that we're pulling together. I uh, saw one, a review of some work that you did and, and somebody was uh, marked about, or remarked rather about your hopefulness, your hopefulness. And here on this show, we even have, you know, have the, the words, words, what's, what next? Uh, in that uh, in the title of the show as well what are the possibilities uh, i'm going to explore that optimism a little bit here if there was if and i we're going to say when there is a greater understanding of the general american populace and native cultures indigenous cultures what are the possibilities what what what, what, what can we hope for to come out of that I, a more sustainable and humane future that benefits all. You know, we're at this critical crossroads uh, as a species. The, you know, our global commons is threatened by the impacts of industry, of, of the various things that we consume and partake in, in in the modern world. And so it is beyond imperative that not only in in this country but around the world that there is respect and collaboration with indigenous peoples to see that we're not some quaint relic of the past Uh, we have very viable um, ideas we have tremendous intellectual traditions and we very much want to be partners at the table in seeking out a sustainable future for all. So my students give me a lot of hope for the future because I see them critically thinking about these things. A lot of them are here from uh, Western New York and, and are local, and they are really opening their minds to get to know who their indigenous neighbors are, and, and, and they want... They're, they're really desiring to, to know and to see, you know, where can um, bridges of communication be built? Where can uh, alliances of solidarity and, and mutual interest take place? And, you know, the Seneca Nation is one of the largest employers in Western New York. And, you know, it's, it's not always appreciated uh, just how significant our impact is. You know, we... we quite often have been vilified in the media is, uh, you know, we're 
greedy or you know this and that uh and it's kind of <laughs> ironic that yeah. you know to hear these kinds of um various statements over the years from different administrations come out of albany to dr. characterize us dr. Like dr jason corwin i'm going to leave that very powerful statement for the end thank you very much for joining us yes thank this, you this has been buffalo what's next on wbfo and wbfo hd1 buffalo woln olean and wubj jamestown